0: Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology. And I'm your host, James Summeru. Hey, everybody, welcome. So, the episode you're about to see today is with Sasha Tori, and she's one of the co founders of Ali Health. And Ali Health is. A platform that connects patients with practitioners in an efficient and effective way to deliver better patient outcomes overall, relieve pressure from the healthcare ecosystem and provides this bridge between virtual and in-person care solutions. So long story short, they have got this mission to solve a problem of clinical staff working late nights overtime. They're on this mission to solve this problem. Basically, what they're doing is they're evening out care. So you've got supply, you've got demand, it's all over the place. They're trying to even all of that out with essentially a complex tech solution that understands all of that and can start matching people to where the care is needed. One of the things they're doing is they are sending staff uh, into people's homes. Uh, Essentially, they can connect to remote monitoring stuff so that alerts can go out. People can be sent. So they've got this workforce that's available um, that they can then match the demand. And they're partnering up with various different private clinics and NHS organizations to enable this kind of on demand service for uh for healthcare, basically, which is great. Um Talks about loads of cool stuff. Uh, we talked about Sasha's background. She worked with a couple of investors that she thinks really highly of, Greg and Mike. She talks about how they kind of taught her to be, um, well, showed her that she could, which is an interesting phrase that we talk about. Um, she talks about the challenges of being a, a woman in business uh, and actually finding the confidence to speak up that your opinion is worth something in a very traditionally masculine work environment you know things like finance and business really are on and we talk about that quite a lot but her kind of expressing her femininity and and her development of leadership knowing that and she has a few calls to action of women in business and what they should be aware of and for, through what she's learned and things like that it's a super interesting stuff um we talk about EQ, the value, you know IQ versus EQ. Actually, it's it's more feminine traits like EQ, perhaps that are that I use quite a lot uh, in growing X to the point that we're at now, we talk about that, um, and obviously we talk about this huge challenge that healthcare has got, particularly with nursing staff. Seven hundred thousand nurses on the register, twenty-one percent. Unable to raise concerns, two third working unpaid hours, a fifth of nurses and midwives looking for new jobs. So pretty harrowing stats. And what they're trying to do with their platform is help all of these people out to give them uh, the working lives they want, and to give healthcare in the community what it needs uh, to get patients before they are a burden on the system and essentially before they're a burden on themselves too and actually to um make sure that we're catching things before they happen so that everyone's a winner be that the patient themselves be that the system that they're in um and as we've learned on previous podcasts matching up the clinical value with the financial value is how actually we create impact in healthcare and uh, Ali health are doing it really well so yeah hope you enjoy this episode so sasha welcome to the health tech podcast how are you doing
1: Yeah, good. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Um, Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to us talking. Uh, Obviously, Ali Health has been on a mission to solve, uh, well, problem of clinical staff staying too late, which is a challenge that I know obviously incredibly well. Um, You're doing some super interesting things. So yeah, really looking forward to getting into it. But before we do, uh, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Sasha?
1: So I'm based in central London. We have offices in Fitzrovia. So I spend most of my time here um, or at home and kind of when I'm not bouncing around between client meetings.
0: <laughs> Fitzrovia, that's a thats a heck of a place to have an office. I um, can't be cheap. She must be doing quite well, but we'll come to that. <laughs> um, cool. So Sasha, listen, um, great to have you on. Um looking forward to this i know you've got quite an interesting story to tell um so why don't i get out of your way and let you tell your story
1: yeah so for context i guess i'm british and canadian although i don't sound british at all um and i spent many years living and working in the u.s before moving back to the uk um for me, I guess, uh, before diving into my story, I guess I've always had a knack for joining businesses pretty early on and being with them throughout that kind of scale-up journey. And that's been true both on kind of both sides of the ocean. Kind of with that said, my background in the health tech ecosystem actually started under two really incredible and charismatic um and supportive angel investors Greg Drobnik and Mike Wartzman. So I was connected with the two of them while I was living in LA. um, And I just wanted to give them a a great shout out on this podcast because they were big supporters of me. Um, So I worked with Greg and Mike while I was finishing up my degree at USC in international relations and global business. And I also did work with them beyond graduating from USC. For Greg and Mike, I was primarily doing due diligence on potential investments, working on bits and pieces for the companies that they had already invested in. But most importantly, I think Greg and Mike helped me understand what it means to go beyond just analyzing investment opportunities, like more specifically, I guess, to understand how to be critical of opportunities that are put in front of me in a positive and constructive way. Um, and they did really teach me the importance of kind of putting yourself in the right room and the right space to be successful. I guess on a quick side note, I think a lot of women are afraid of acknowledging this, um, and afraid of acting in a way in business that allows for this to be done or achieved. Um, so learning this from two men at the beginning of my career and seeing it be so successful in practice was hugely empowering for me and just a really great way to start my career. So at the time, kind of working with Greg and Mike, I was juggling working kind of hours with them during the week and on the weekends, finishing up my studies and doing a part-time job at my university. Kind of sounds like I was juggling a lot at the time, but um it's always given me tons of energy to hold jobs, be really busy. I've I get tons of energy from that, and I have kind of been working from a fairly young age. When I was younger, I always thought I wanted to work specifically on the investment side. So I guess for me it was very interesting or it seemed very cool to dip my fingers in like the the pots of different companies and different groups. But um kind of I I was parachuted into an investment of Greg and Mike's. Uh, it was called Heal. It is still called Heal, um which is a US on-demand kind of doctor visiting service based in L.A., kind of scaled nationwide. Um, And while I was at Heal, I really found my love for health tech, started to pick apart and dig into the holes in the healthcare system through the lens of actually being in the tech startup and looking at the tools that are currently being used for care and care delivery kind of across the board. So what was I doing at Heal? Um, I was the director of business development. Um, I worked closely with our CEO at the time, so the then CEO, to develop kind of insur- the insurance business and deliver key projects um, specifically around the expansion into the corporate health space. Um, I would say the, the kind of big takeaway from that experience was I was put into a room with people who are super passionate about health and tech and, you know, change. Uh, And that really did kind of light a fire inside of me about um, how things could be done differently in care and like delivering care to patients. So, yeah, it was really fantastic, that opportunity at Heal. and And I absolutely loved working with the team there. But then my path actually crossed um, a founder in the UK who convinced me to come here to London to help him scale his, um, at the time, on-demand visiting GP service, um, a company called Cured. And growing up in the UK and knowing the healthcare system, I think I was really kind of drawn to this opportunity because I saw the need for enabling access to care for patients And although Cured was a private service, it was at the time offering on demand GP at home in kind of an affordable way, um, even for the private side. But it was also very tech enabled, which was kind of an unheard of combo. Um, So I joined the founder, who was the CEO at the time, as the head of business development. Um, But I guess when you have kind of just a few people at the company at the start, you're doing everything. So in the early days, I think we were doing everything from like handing out flyers and <laughs> doing cold calls and God running between meetings on a motorcycle just to make sure we could make it to all the meetings in time um, and navigating a tiny, tiny office space, probably the size of a closet that had no air conditioning um and i remember that this summer i came over to london it was an unusually hot british summer um <laughs> we did move out of the office space once we started to grow as a company which was great but long story short i guess during the pandemic the company did shift into providing covid support and covid testing um to groups across the uk so we were working with groups like tfl british airways um a few well-known football clubs, a few big, big financial institutions. Um, and, you know, really we grew that company from just having a few people in a room uh, to over a hundred people, which was incredible. Scaling that business, like on all fronts, like tech, ops, logistics, governance, sales, I mean, just everything you can think of was extremely tough. I mean, you know pulling all nighters working you know weekends back to back to back really really just having nothing else apart from the focus on growing that business yeah it was tough uh, but it was an eye opening experience for me and i think it really helped me realize that i could and like more importantly wanted to start and scale my own business specifically in a realm that i saw needed kind of transformation, um, within that health ecosystem. So yeah, I guess during that time I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but it wasn't until I met my current co-founder and us having like the right time on our side to kind of have this dream materialize. So my current co-founder I met two years ago, um, and to preface all of this, she is truly a powerhouse and I'm so lucky to have her as a my business partner, Um, we were two young women playing a role in the diagnostics and COVID support space during the pandemic. And we connected just to get to know one another on more of a professional level. Um, But Kelly comes from a consulting background. She has worked with groups like BD, Abbott, L'Oreal, and she also co-founded a not-for-profit testing company called Testing for All. Um, With our other co-founder, James Monaco, basically it gave people access to COVID testing at an affordable rate. Um, More importantly, during a time when most companies were making kind of ridiculous profits off of this um, um, and, you know, when patients were very vulnerable. So that company was hugely successful. um, But after that, Kelly did start looking for kind of her next steps. And she shared the vision with me that there was still tons to be done in the healthcare space, in the healthcare tech space specifically. And luckily the two of us kind of felt that there was the same gap in the market, which was again, very lucky. Um, so we saw that gap in just like utilizing clinical staff time and caring for people outside of traditional, like brick and mortar clinical setting. Um. So Kelly actually got started on getting the business up and running. Um. And when I could, I did kind of finish up with everything that I was doing at Cured and handling at Cured, and I was able to join her, kind of jump on board, hit the ground running, um, and get things rolling specifically on that growth front, um yeah, so here we are.
0: Awesome. It's a heck of a story. And I think what one thing that hits me immediately is like, I think it's super interesting how people amass the skills and the confidence to become entrepreneurs, especially to become entrepreneurs that raise venture funding and are suddenly indebted to people that have given them loads of money. And I always wonder, you know, because I can, I can remember being in like my 20s and coming out of medicine and like accelerators and looking at these founders and going like where on earth do you get the confidence from to like borrow multiple millions of pounds or, or you know you're not borrow sometimes it's debt funding i suppose but even to yeah. get you know give away a percentage of this thing which is basically like nothing to like sell that for millions of pounds take that on and then have this like you're on a promise then to grow this company it, it's it's super interesting to me that there's two things that seem to be part of that which is like the ingredients of the of the individual like the knowledge and the skills that, that that then contribute I suppose in at least in part to confidence but then actually the confidence itself like where does this actually come from and I think it's it's interesting in your background that you've you've sort of you, you've been in all parts of it it's interesting to me that you started on the investment side actually and you said you wanted to work on the investment side f- for a long time which I think is interesting which yeah, I do want to know yeah. why but then actually <laughs> linking that and, and going back to them being parachuted into companies, being part of the growth from zero to a hundred of a company, which is the hard yards, and I suppose the experience of doing that and and knowing what that feels like, knowing what that looks like, being able to have some experience of mistakes made and things that are done right and things like that, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I mean, was the was the like, first of all? Why did you want to work on the investment side to begin with? And secondly, like was there was there like a tipping point in your confidence and in your knowledge and skill? Was it did it become this like unbearable force that you were like I have to go and do this myself now? Like talk about that for me.
1: Why did I want to work on the investment side? I mean, you know it it maybe boils down to a few things. I mean, I grew up in London, where you are surrounded by just this force of kind of finance players who are really dominating a lot of kind of London's, or at least it, they did dominate a lot of London's kind of culture and, um, you know, just the conversation around careers and what a successful career looked like when I was growing up. So I think that definitely influenced when I decided to go to university and, you know, pick my mm-hmm. studies. I chose a degree that was international relations, um, global business with a concentration in finance, probably because of that influence in my upbringing. Um, and seeing kind of all those successful people around me and seeing that, you know, a lot of them did seem to kind of work in that realm. They were working in finance. And when I was in university, um, I had that fantastic opportunity to learn all about, you know, investments and, you know, the, the actual kind of mechanics behind that. And really I, 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 thought yeah this this is amazing you know you can as an investor get involved in so many different companies help them with kind of something that yes they they do you know, they do often need, most companies do need financing. They do need outside capital to really scale. So for me, it was so appealing to basically have my finger or the opportunity to have my finger on many different pots and facilitate with the growth of many different startups. But then I think that transition really came at the point where with Greg and Mike, I was working closely with different founders And I really got to see, you know, how passionate they were about their companies and what made them tick. What made them tick was, you know, finding that need um, or finding kind of their passion and then building a company around that need or, or their passion. And for me, when I started working at Heal, I really did find that passion in health tech, my mom comes from a background working in healthcare um, from a young age. She did really instill that kind of love of just being around um, the healthcare system, being around healthcare workers, um, helping people. And, you know, that experience that Heal solidified for me, like, yes, this is something that I want to be involved in more. And then beyond that. I actually see an issue that needs to be solved for, and, you know, I, I did at the time feel like I've got to build my confidence around, you know, what that value proposition is and my own knowledge and ability to go out on my own and, and really kind of spearhead a company. But I think, you know, to your point, it wasn't a quick kind of jump to the Mm -hmm. entrepreneur, Um, For me, kind of that investment, uh, the transition from looking at investments and then kind of going to this side came slowly. And I think it was just about building the confidence and awareness in myself and really what I wanted to do um, and who I wanted to help.
0: Yeah, confidence and awareness. Interesting. One of the phrases you mentioned there was that you were showed that I could. I think I think that's interesting, particularly with what you said previously about Greg and Mike. Greg, Greg and Mike have clearly had a big influence on you. And you actually talked about them helping you overcome certain assumed truths about being a woman as well. And the the way that you saw yourself as a woman and you saw your place in the world and place in the business world as a woman and th- And working with them help you overcome that. Can you talk to me about being a woman and confidence and business is is what you've just taught? and just that I just want to learn from you like that that journey that you went on, um because I think that yeah, I think that sounds quite important,
1: yeah, definitely. No, and it's something I mean, it is it's a really, really difficult subject to tackle because there are so many aspects that feed into like women in business and women, um, running their own businesses. But from my experience, um, you know, I guess it all starts from, you know, having that leadership and having kind of those, um, those men, um, those two men in my life who are able to basically show me that it is okay to put yourself in positions where you are speaking up and where you know you are leading meetings. Um, and I guess it all roots back to um I guess looking at kind of the more traditional businesses and um you know what it takes to be successful in traditional businesses and how that has worked in the past. You know, typically women have had to basically fit the mold of kind of a man and and a man's position in a company Mm. to basically um, progress um, to get to the top. So women were taking on fairly masculine traits um, in the past, and maybe it it was a little bit of a kind of cutthroat or sharp elbows environment um, to get to the top. Um, but I really think what Greg and Mike taught me was, you know, as a woman, you have an amazing perspective that is different from the men in the room. Um, you are kind of valuable in your, your, the kind of comments that you give and the feedback you give is useful. So speak up. Um, but then kind of, I think most importantly, it's, um, you know, just because you're included in the room doesn't mean that, you know, that, you know, that is a success. You've actually got to do your work. You've got to prepare properly. You've got to show up, um, probably, uh, even more prepared than the others in the room, um, to make sure that you, you know, can get things done that you want to get done. Um, but I guess really being a woman in business right now, Uh, I would say we've made tons of change. So, you know, I'm lucky that we're in a time where, you know, there are, there, there's push for investors to invest in female funded companies. I mean, kind of globally right now, you're looking at kind of 10% of funding going to female founded health tech startups. Um, but in the UK, You know, you're looking at kind of 27% of equity deals in the UK going to female-founded or kind of co-founded, so mixed teams. So what I would really say is, you know, as a woman in business, be confident in yourself, um, come to the room prepared, um, that helps with the confidence piece, but also be aware that like there are supporters, there are advocates for you. And the trend is pulling in the right direction um, to see more female founders be funded. Um, and, you know, more, I guess, even female um, led companies that are also supporting female Issues, So female health, whatever it may be, is also on the rise. Um, but also as a woman, I think it's super important. And I've always been such an advocate for this. You know, women should support other women. So really go out of your way. You know, if you're in a room at an investor meeting um, or an investor event, like bring other women into the fold, make sure no one's standing alone, make sure you're helping a new female founder with navigating that journey. Like it is, it takes kind of a village to make a company successful. So make sure you're a woman in the room standing up for other women who are on their journeys.
0: It's funny, you know, you, you talked previously in your story about the influence of, of finance and now as you talk about business there, it's, it's interesting to me that we talk about m- the masculine traits that women need to express in order to advance. And these industries traditionally of finance and business obviously being like is it fair to say very masculine traditional areas right where you where you would expect that the infrastructure that's been built in terms of progression because of probably what's been linked to success in the past as well in terms of yeah we we all know the stereotypes of the entrepreneurs or business owners or ceos that are horrendous individuals and draconian Mm -hmm. and autocratic and shouty and demanding mm-hmm. and th- we, we know that stereotype and, and there's this we hear it of like people like Steve Jobs for example there's the, you know the rumors of him you know make it make it load quicker when the computer turns on it needs to be on within a few seconds end of story do it again do it again, do it again. And, and being like pretty horrendous with that it's th- these are these are all narratives that we have there that, that are attached to success but one version of it and i think there's there's many routes to success that have not been previously explored perhaps and i think we are in a in an age now where it is we, we are far more open to less traditionally masculine ways of getting from a to b different forms of leadership you look at the the like female prime ministers and presidents and 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 people really at the top now that are really making a new type of leadership, not only fashionable, but actually the proof of success when it comes to leading differently. And I think whether you're male, you're female, or however you identify, I think that genuinely does benefit everybody because we're seeing far more sides to a story of leadership now and I think I genuinely do think the world is a much better place because of that and will continue to be as we do that I think there's obviously still a long way to go like clearly especially in the worlds that you've talked about of finance and business that are still you know they we have a hangover of tradition and certainly far more than a hangover when you, when you consider those statistics of of 10% and even, you know, (laughs) calling 27% positive, you know? (laughs) So I I think it's interesting. Thank you for sharing it though. I mean, it is important because we've done a lot of women's health events recently. And, and certainly I've been in a lot of those discussions of women's health, but I think also I've been in discussions about masculinity and where masculinity becomes toxic is a really blurred line. And actually there are there are also masculine traits which you can't just assume. Masculinity should not be a pre, like a pejorative word. Masculine should not be a pejorative, but it seems like we've got this reflex where it sort of is, and I, I, don't, I don't quite know where to stand on it myself, to be honest. It's hard to talk about positive masculine masculinity because of so much assumed toxic. You know, it, it, it's it's a tough space. I don't know if you've got anything to say on it.
1: It is. It's a really tough space to address. And actually, I heard such an amazing story recently from an angel investor who really has supported some incredible female led companies. Um, and, you know, he's supported the likes of Flow and Luna, um, which are both, you know, incredible female led companies. And, you know, he was talking about, um, his experience as, you know, a male ally and a man mm-hmm. who is, you know, doing his best to support these female led businesses. Um, but you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look at it as I'm supporting women just because he's looking at it as I support women who are doing amazing things. Yeah. And he talked about a story of, you know, his investment in flow. And basically, you know, hearing about the products and, you know, basically being given these, you know, organic tampons for him to like, you know, sample. And he was like, you know, I cannot, for me, this is not something that I can sample, but I'm taking a look at this product in isolation. I'm looking at the business model and. I'm looking at these two incredible founders and everything stacks up across the board. This is, um, you know, something that I want to get behind as a, a an investor who wants to make returns. So I think in that story, you actually take such an interesting, there's such an interesting spin on like masculinity and investing because at the end of the day, he's, He's in it to make returns, but he's open minded to looking at something that he cannot use, and he knows. But affects fifty one percent of the population of the planet, by the way. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, and I guess really, you know, I think when I look at you know to your point about masculinity, you know, you there are traits associated with kind of not being emotional um, and you know, really being kind of numbers focused, um, with a bit of blinders on, um, and then taking the flip side of that and saying, well, you know, as a woman, you're super emotional and you, you know, can't think rationally you, um, you know, you're going to get kind of, uh, you're going to get stuck on things when, um, you know, things get a little bit tough, you're going to kind of fall apart. Um, and I actually look to, you know, founders like Whitney Wolf, who has a very emotional founder story and really isn't afraid of voicing that and using that to motivate herself and also to motivate the, the men that have invested in the company. Mm-hmm. An area that I do think a lot of women do need to work on, myself included, is um, not over indexing on things that we think we need to be in order to fit that male kind of that, that male box of what it means to be successful. So I think a lot of men are very good at talking about vision and, you know, describing what their company will be in the future. Um, I think a lot of women, myself included, talk really in the sense of numbers, what we're <laughs> achieving right now tangible things, um, that will kind of lead to success. But I think we do sometimes need to take a little bit of dose from our male counterparts, which I think is very, very needed. And they do very well with, you know, talking on that vision piece, getting people excited about the future of our companies and what we can do in, um, a world that has more female founders
0: and vice versa as well. And actually, what you're, ta- what you're talking to is just becoming well-rounded, aren't you? And actually, when I think of my own company uh, in Somex and founded by myself and Jessica, so we, we do, just as you've described, I've got an eye on the future. Jessica's got her eye on the now. And it's funny how we just naturally gravitate to that. And yes, I am far more involved in selling the future and vision, and I am more involved in that. But actually, the here and now just f- feels far more connected to that in terms of understanding the problems that he's solving and, and doing that stuff now. I do. I do. Feel, it's interesting, though, as well as we talk about masculinity and femininity and how that how that is related to startups. Because I would say at the stage we're at now, you know, round about a million ARR, like between ten and twenty people in the company, depending on how you count them, like. I think I use my EQ far more in a day than my IQ, because actually I think running a company at this stage becomes so much about people becomes so much about how you are very gently nudging certain people to do certain things or, or to, to influence the way that people behave to each other and, their relationship to their work. I think all of this is done with words. All of this is done with relationships. All of this is done with the understanding of who they are as people and what their personalities are. And traditionally, you know, it's interesting the phrase, isn't it? Man management. Traditionally that, that, it's weird that it's that it's known as that, although it's person management, ultimately. It's one-to-one management. It's understanding an individual and how they are going to react to the way that you manage them. I think it's often used in sports and particularly in football, which is where man management has come from, I think, in, in the way that I'm describing it there. But I, I do think that's actually an EQ trait. That's an, that, that's a more that's a, that's a more feminine trait to be able to understand the individual's personality and behaviours to then know how to uh, essentially navigate. emotionally navigate. manipulate them to behave in a certain way. But you know you know what I'm saying right? <laughs> that, that I th- I do use my EQ far more, which is perhaps you know labelled a more feminine trait, whereas actually I'm sure that there are some males who are very good at man management that would, that would hate to be told that that's actually probably one of the more feminine traits that they're very good at and all that kind of thing. Um, or as I say, (laughs) I was quite proud of it. (laughs) It's quite funny.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I do think there's so much about running a business that is about understanding your employees, understanding where they're at in their own journeys. Um, Understanding how to motivate them, understanding how to basically push a little bit harder when there are kind of urgent things to get done, but also, you know, taking the step back and celebrating with the team on the wins, whether they're small wins or big wins. Um, but I completely agree with you. It is a lot of it is about um, harnessing that EQ. Um, and I think something that Kelly and I are constantly doing is, um, working on relationship management. So, you know, l- being honest with ourselves, being honest in where we're at um, and how we're kind of interacting with other people in the company based on the things that we've got going on, um, whether it's chatting with investors, you know, trying to get a contract across the line or, um, you know, juggling meetings around the city to try and, you know, meet with as many people as we can um, and get as many people interested in basically what we're offering as possible. So it's a lot, it's a lot of hats to wear and, um, uh, to your point, you know, probably much more EQ than, than IQ.
0: Absolutely. I want to go back to your story now. So obviously we got to a point where you've amassed a lot of knowledge, a lot of skill and a lot of confidence. And so the step into entrepreneurship must come next so tell me about that.
1: The step into the kind of entrepreneur world with Ali health, um, I think telling you a little bit more about the company and myself um, might be really helpful. But before I do that, what I can, what I'd love to do is just share with you kind of a few facts and figures around kind of nursing um, and nursing in the UK that are always top of mind for me, um, that do fuel that mm. kind of entrepreneur journey day in and day out here on in what we're doing. So I guess in the UK, good to know that kind of there are, I think just over 700 and th- 700,000 nurses on what's called like the NMC register, um, which is up from the previous year. So there were 680,000. Nurses working the previous year, so roughly a 3% growth rate, which is great. Um, but kind of 21% of nurses have said they feel unable to raise concerns in their current ways of working. So, whether that's from the systems and processes they're given, um, maybe that's because they feel like they don't have enough time to raise concerns easily or, or efficiently or even that they're not in the right environment for this escalation to basically be heard or addressed. Um, In the NHS, kind of two-thirds of nurses are working kind of additional unpaid hours. Um, I think that stat was taken in 2019. But as you can imagine, like this is all leading to the overall discontent and like a trend of kind of one in five nurses reportedly like looking for new jobs, nurses and midwives. So I can't reiterate enough that like these people and these professionals are critical in holding up our healthcare system. And it is, again, so critical to figure out a way to empower them while ensuring that patients can be cared for efficiently and effectively. So in short, like that is my mission. That is our mission and what we're working towards at Alley Health and really kind of those are the metrics that keep us going on this entrepreneur journey. And for the company, I guess, there is a North Star metric that we use to keep ourselves grounded. um, And that is that 70% of all medical decisions globally rely on in-person assessments. Um, So, you know, our entrepreneur journey set out to kind of create an API-led platform that does support in-person patient care pathways in the community. Um, So to allow for care to happen in the home where patients kind of feel most comfortable and where we believe that care can be delivered best. Yeah. How do we do this? I guess through a patient-led booking system Um, and this system surfaces clinical care staff availability on one side and basically matches that with a patient on the other side through kind of task optimization software that is fueled by basically a supply and demand aggregation model. And I think not to simplify it, um, which our tech team and data team don't love when I do, um, because there's so much more that goes into it than this, but essentially we take time free to work coverage area, clinical skills, um, like qualifications of our practitioners and the requirements from specific partners. Um, We plug this all into the model and then spit out the best match. So the business is operating B2B. A lot of people assume we operate D2C, but um, so a lot of people think they can hop on and just book appointments using our service now, which sadly right now you can't. Um, so I think it's always helpful to make that distinction for people. Um, but right now we're doing everything in the UK. Um, and I guess where is the entrepreneur journey going next? We do want to expand our software globally into the future. I guess really right now, looking at the space, you'd be pretty shocked. Like most of the booking systems in the clinical care world are routed in phone-based communication, routing through pen and paper. Um, The social care side of things with kind of elderly patients is a much more developed space. But for that kind of community clinical care piece, it's pretty underdeveloped and not very tech enabled. So in short, we really, really are working to remove all of those kind of archaic systems and replace them with tech to make just care delivery so much more efficient.
0: You've talked about like the, you're addressing this kind of mismatch of or well, you're trying to match the people with the, the, the nurses with free time to those yeah. that need it. Obviously everyone then becomes a winner because you're, you're flattening that, that very chaotic up and down uh, nature of, essentially supply and demand if we're going to talk simple economics yeah so you mentioned going b2b who who is the buyer here so is it is it nhs organizations is it is it more kind of is it like icss and regions and 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 that kind of thing is it private health providers that are providing a service to a region or to a group of care. Like talk to me about like the buyer and the, the sort of the business behind this.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I guess there are kind of three um, areas where we're seeing our solution really um, fit nicely um, and we're seeing demand. Um, So, You can think of the primary care pathway, then the secondary care pathway, and then Mm. clinical trials and pharma. Really across the board, what our solution is doing is it's taking a disjointed care pathway where, you know, the patient is being seen. Um, and let's just take, you know, a patient who has, um, undergone surgery for, um, you know, a type of cancer, that patient is typically discharged um, from the hospital. They're being maybe monitored remotely by um, their GP, Um, but there will be cases where that individual does need to come back into the clinic. That individual might have, you know, might be experiencing um, elevated heart rate or something post-surgery where they're worried and they need to rush back into the clinic. In that case, a company like ours, Ally Health, could send someone to the home just to check on the patient and make sure that they are they are fine, that they don't need to come in back into that overburdened clinical setting. But then secondly, there's another use case where that patient would need to come back in for a blood test that blood test does not need to be done back in the clinic. That patient who is recovering from a surgery can stay at home, have a phlebotomist come to them and basically carry on with their recovery journey in a way that doesn't cause undue stress onto them or back onto the healthcare system. But when you do look at those specific verticals where we are seeing you know clients coming to us and and really needing our solution um we are looking right now and, and we have clients right now in um the private clinic space we have clients that are labs we have clients that um are in that kind of clinical trial space so supporting clinical trials um we do have um virtual GP client, um, and we hope to have more in the future. And we also do have a small contract with the NHS up in Birmingham. Really for all of those clients, as I mentioned, kind of with that disjointed patient care pathway, keeping people out of clinics, that kind of is true across the board. But really what we do see true for those groups is um, expanding their their reach. So expanding the patients that they can actually cover, offering additional services. So offering these services in the home adds another kind of string to their bow. um, And ultimately kind of really um, capturing revenue that otherwise would have been lost to having to let go of that patient or having to send that patient elsewhere. Mm. So, you know, really that is meaningful for private groups that are commercially driven. Um, But really on the NHS side where this does make sense and where we're developing a program kind of with the NHS is around using community nurses' time efficiently and effectively. So community nurses um, do go out into the home, as we all know right now. A lot of the time they're defaulting back to pen and paper. Yeah. Similarly, a lot of the time a nurse is going into the home with one specific task in mind. So they're going to give, you know, a vaccination to a homebound patient, but there isn't currently um, in a meaningful way, a solution that allows those groups to bring together kind of people with comorbidities and tackle more than just one thing in the home so our technology you know allows for that to happen we can enable the nurse or the hca or the phlebotomist to be routed in the most efficient way but also to really tackle more than just one thing there which is very appealing to to groups both private and 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 public
0: yes and I can imagine as well, the longer this goes on, the more data that you have around the health economic model and actually the improvements that you're making. And therefore the case journey just gets stronger. I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's super interesting because with the, obviously with the, the move for healthcare to go into the community, which frankly is what. I think we all want and we all want to get closer. We need these types of technologies that enable these new models to kind of prove that it's not only okay, but actually economically viable and beneficial. And it seems like that's what you guys are doing. It's difficult to talk about the private sector when it comes to this type of thing because actually it's like a naughty word and it's, it's, but there is a role here because actually the private sector that's commercially driven if they're if they're willing to pay for something it's because it delivers financially if it delivers financially and it does that at scale over a few of these providers or at least over a long period of time, then you show the public sector this is not taking a punt. you show the public sector that hey it has been used here these are the returns that it's made and the finance the, the private sector is just able to take more risk there they are willing to look at things and take, know take more of a risk to to adopt new things and actually that ends up showing the model back right and and that that becomes it becomes very valuable i but i think i guess what i want to talk to you about is that future of the move to the community so where does where do you think this goes so playing out what you guys are doing you're evening out that that mismatch there and you're allowing far more to happen in the community you're you're showing the data behind that being economically favourable. The private people are getting ROI. The public sector starts to buy it. This start, This happens more and more and more. If we think about other digital health companies and, and other things that, that are also helping with this movement, where do you think this ends up going? Like what? What if Ali Health is successful? Truly successful what does healthcare actually look like at the other end? That's the first part of this. And then like yeah. what beyond that is the, the, like, yeah. what what's the future for hospitals full stop? What's the future for centralizing care at all? What's the fit? So I'm interested in your thoughts because you're obviously in this space, right? So I'm interested in what you think.
1: About yeah. That. yeah, no, it is such a great question. And I think kind of that piece for us of making sure that we're, one, empowering patients, getting them the care they need in the home, keeping them out of that clinic setting where they could potentially get sick, stress themselves out getting there. You know, if they're suffering with mobility issues, um, you know, they're getting other people involved, which is just – it can sometimes be a mess – So enabling those patients to, like, live their lives health in a more healthy way um, is key. And then also empowering those nurses to work in a way where, you know, they can feel safe, they're not going into the home, and, you know, feeling like they can't communicate with their, you know, their employer um, who's sending them there if something goes wrong. So empowering those nurses, allowing those work nurses to work more efficiently, you know, routing them to appointments properly does take a certain level of stress off of them, but allows them to do the job that they love and they want to do, which is to see patients and help patients. So for us, you know, that is kind of the 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 near term prize and what we're working on. Um, But when I do look at, you know, what this means for the healthcare system as a whole, really to me, it's about um, enabling that home health kind of ecosystem in, in an even more robust way. So having those devices in the home that are monitoring people, you know, you should have a device in the home that is tracking for fall risks and hooking that up to our systems to allow for, you know, someone to come and check on a patient before they actually do fall. Um, you know, you've got someone that is presenting that to a device. Perfect. Um, before they are a burden on a system, you get someone out to them to help them, uh, and basically, um, you know, maybe even enable their family to take better care of that person um, before it becomes a big issue. Um, You know, you talk about people that are wearing the aura rings and tracking their steps on their phones. You know, I truly believe that, you know, care needs to get to a point, like the example of, you know, the fall risk and catching that before it becomes an issue. I do think all of our health devices should be connected into a system like ally Health to allow, you know, us as healthcare professionals to really advise patients on when they should be seen. You know, you look at the, you know, average um, man in the UK, who really actually doesn't get involved in his health on average until, you know, he's in his 50s or maybe late 40s and is showing, you know, um, issues with a heart or, you know, a more uh, serious issue that needs to be addressed. We're seeing those individuals come crashing into the system. So really, if we can catch that before that issue becomes, um, you know, becomes present then we're really doing a good thing as a healthcare system as a whole so yeah in short basically connecting those devices with a company like ally health for the preventive health piece to really come to life um and to prompt people
0: yeah i love that you used a really interesting phrase actually before they are a burden on the system and that's such an important time isn't it where you've t- you've mentioned the word risk quite a lot and so much I think of digital health's potential is when we when we think about these point solutions and where digital health can truly be effective I think it is as you say finding people at the point of high risk before they are a burden on the system and that is where the intervention yeah. can be most useful to them personally as an individual with a life who want and they want to have more healthy years but also then financially for the system and where those two things unite the clinical value and the financial value is where actually at a system level things can be implemented and purchased because they deliver for everybody and that is incredibly important i think my just to tell you about my dad my dad was a nurse um he trained uh in the South, uh f- became he, chief nursing officer and, and did some cool stuff, but he's he's eighty now and is not engaged in I mean <laughs> the guy the guy yeah. <laughs> was was did I mean he, he was he was having like dizzy spells and like all sorts of stuff and then got all the didn't say anything to anyone. Obviously he's a very proud man um yeah. African from Mauritius like very proud man did not did not want anything doing. So he at a point of high risk, he probably knew it as well, didn't. But he didn't want to be a burden to anyone. He didn't want to be a burden to family or the health service or anything. So just thought, oh, I'll just manage right. it myself doing literally nothing. Got to the point of having right. a TIA. And then all of a sudden, like... Then yeah, something much, much, much worse could have happened, but it took that to even become engaged. And I can see that being a clear use case here that, you know, with a, with a service like Ali Health, where that happens, the fall happens, family aren't around all of a sudden it becomes solved. And I think actually yeah. before something even worse happens, you know, let's say it was a full stroke, let's say it's an, it's ischemia, let's say that then, you know, as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse and the neurological deficit becomes more and more and more that burden of that health condition to that individual and therefore the financial burden to the system is getting greater by the minute or by the second even. And actually early intervention yeah. becomes incredibly important because the risk obviously gets greater and greater and the burden becomes greater and greater the more deficit. But frankly, just that individual just gets worse and worse the rest of their life. So like in the, in that acute phase, every second counts, you know, it, it becomes incredibly important. So I can see it. I can feel it. It's palpable to me, like the, val- the value of something like this. And I think it, you must have a lot more stories like that, right? of where this has helped,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is to your point on kind of your your dad and and you know, not taking action on his health throughout his life. Um, you know it's it's something that is it's so widespread, you know, I think mm. to a certain extent, we we all kind of live these busy lives. we you know, need to go to work, take care of families. Um, and really that is, and, it, and it can a lot of the time take a back seat. Um, and when you look at things like, you know, brushing your teeth from a young age, we are all told you brush your teeth so that you don't get cavities and you do it every day. And we're reminded and are in that pattern is ingrained in us as as young children to really brush your teeth and do it every day. And even with things like a car and getting your car serviced, you know, we're all told every year your car has to have an MOT for you to be able to be on the road, for your car to be safe and to be healthy. And for me, really that power is in those remote monitoring devices in being that reminder. Like these devices should be telling us you are, you need to check in with your health. You need to do this, whether it's every day or every week. And then really about building around that, the support system to allow for, you know, you to, to, to have it escalated if needed or you to have these things looked into if there's anything that's out of that norm. Um, so I really think it's an exciting time for health and health tech. And I, um, you know, you hope that there aren't as many stories like this, which there are tons of them, um, kind of like your dad who, you know, with the proper reminders and support probably, you know, would have been a very different outcome. Mm. So I'm so hopeful for the future.
0: Yeah, Absolutely and uh yeah my dad ended up having an endarterectomy for a massive blood clot in his neck so you know it's one of those that you get this little warning could have been a lot worse and especially then if no one's around and and as i say like it's incredibly valuable what you're doing and i think it's um yeah it must it must be rewarding you know i mean to to come full circle here you've come from uh finance and and business cross sector and all these different investments to end up in healthcare and doing this now and turning all of that learning and confidence as we've talked about to now solving this problem at scale in healthcare, I think is awesome. And it must, it must be very rewarding. Um, and yeah, I honestly wish you all the best with it. I I have a couple more questions though. So, um, for people that want to learn more about what you're doing. Actually, let's, let's do one more before that one, before that, who is it exactly? So you've mentioned, you've mentioned NHS organizations, you've mentioned certain private clinics and things like that at the moment for you, who are you best for? Who do you, or who do you want coming to you now? So for everybody listening, that might be part of some of these organizations who, who are you really after?
1: Really for us right now, you know, those private clinics, um, helping with those private clinics and that outpatient pathway, huge. Um, we are doing work with the NHS right now um, on that kind of health check piece and, and, you know, helping in the, you know, helping in the home and the community with those patients who have the need for those vaccines and also other things to be addressed simultaneously. Um but really where the most success has come from is, um, with labs. So we actually will be launching, um, a new partnership, um, which, uh, is pretty exciting with a group called Viva health labs. Um, we're actually launching this on the 2nd of May. Um, and I think really we're so excited about this lab opportunity because It gives these labs the ability to use, you know, by using Ally Health, they can make their diagnostic services available to so many more people. Um, So they can make these services available nationwide. You um, give people also the chance of having a successful blood draw. So I think we're all pretty familiar with these capillary blood samples that you know everyone I think pretty much everyone did during the pandemic to check your antibody levels um, but a lot of the time those samples are you know in layman's terms they're not stable enough um, by the time they make it to the lab the samples coagulated um, so they can't run tests on the samples and by doing the venous blood draw through ally health in the home not only is it super convenient for the patient but also it just ensures the higher success rate of actually having the results that they need to get to that kind of diagnosis or to get to the bottom of whatever they're hoping to have answered through that blood test so i guess for us really excited with those lab partnerships um, shout out to the team at Viva Health um, with that partnership that's going live on the second of May.
0: Great work! For those people that you've mentioned, and for anybody else that wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: Feel free to you know add me on LinkedIn, send me a message on LinkedIn. I you know am checking that all the time. Um, I do often receive partnership inquiries through LinkedIn. So definitely a good channel to get me on, um, on our website, we have a get in touch with us form that does basically ping through to, um, our senior management team. We have people monitoring it throughout the week. Um, and you know, Feel free to, um, you know, shoot me uh, an email if you have, you know, further questions. um, I'm at alexandra.tory at alleyhealth.co.uk.
0: Awesome. And we will stick the links to all that stuff in the description of this episode. So, Sasha, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.